Well, good evening and welcome to tonight's uh, lecture. Tonight's lecture was originally scheduled for last February and had been due to be chaired by the uh, school's director, uh, Howard Davis. Howard Davis, a good friend of our speaker this evening. At the time, however, in February, heavy snow prevented our speaker coming to uh, give the lecture here at the LSE. Despite his very best efforts, uh, he, he remained stuck at Athens Airport. Now, some of you might think this was a wonderful metaphor for the problems of today's Eurozone. Uh, that is, there was a lot of effort, a difficult climate, uh, problematic starts. In any event, we, with our lecture, have achieved our destination tonight. And we're very grateful that our speaker was willing to reschedule the lecture. Now, however, it is Howard Davis, who is not in London, and he gives uh, his apologies for not being here. He's away on a very well-deserved sabbatical leave. So you have me as the stand-in um, chair. Tonight's lecture is hosted by the Hellenic Observatory and the European Institute here at the, the school. And it is co-sponsored by Financial Times Business, whose support we gratefully acknowledge. In fact, I'm pleased to have the opportunity of standing in for Howard Davis on this occasion, as it gives me the opportunity of making a number of personal remarks. Our speaker uh, tonight is one of our most prominent Greek alumni. Dr. Nikos Gaganis graduated with a master's and MSc in economics from the school and has been a long-term friend of the school ever since. The school acknowledged uh, its uh, gratitude to him uh, for his record of service by electing Dr. Gaganis as an honorary fellow of the school. He is one of only two Greeks to be accorded this privileged title. Dr. Gaganis was a prime mover in the establishment of an endowment at the school for a chair in contemporary Greek studies and the establishment of the Hellenic Observatory here in the European Institute. And I'm pleased, of course, to hold the chair that resulted from his efforts and to be the director of the Hellenic Observatory. For the last five years or so, Dr. Gaganis has been the chairman of the observatory's advisory board. And with these various roles, Dr. Gaganis has shown tremendous commitment to the school and to its academic development. He's devoted much time and energy to the success of the Hellenic Observatory, offering his experience and expertise. And I personally have been highly appreciative of his support. And I'm pleased to publicly acknowledge my gratitude. Now, Dr. Gaganis this evening has chosen to speak on the experience of the single European currency and its implications for economic theory and policy. He will speak with much authority on these subjects. He has served two terms as governor of the Central Bank of Greece. Before that, he served for an extended period as deputy governor of the Bank of Greece. In these positions, he's been a member of the European Union's Economic Policy Committee, its Monetary Policy Committee, the Economic and Financial Committee, 
the European Central Bank's Governing Council, and the ECB General Council. In short, Dr. Gaganis has been a member of every EU committee or council relevant to economic and monetary union for at least the last two decades. Alongside this experience, he's held a number of senior policy positions in Greece, including being chief economic advisor to Kostas Simitis when Mr. Simitis was Minister of National Economy in the 1980s. In addition, Dr. Gaganis has published a number of books and papers on various aspects of macroeconomic policy, economic modeling, economic and monetary union, and monetary policy. In short, our speaker is someone with much authority and experience on tonight's uh, topic. So without further delay, given that we were expecting this lecture in February, I will now uh, finish and uh, ask you to give a very warm welcome to our distinguished alumnus, Dr. Gaganis. Ambassador, distinguished guests, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and Kevin, thank you very much for your very kind uh, words. It gives me <coughs> great pleasure to be here today to give this public lecture on the European experience with the Monetary <coughs> Union. The fact that uh, the lecture is taking place at my alma mater makes this occasion a particularly special one for me and I am grateful to Howard Davis and Kevin Featherstone for extending me the invitation. I hope that what I have to say will provide some food for thought. Indeed, I am hopeful that uh, I may be able to convince some skeptics in the audience and I know that they are out there, that monetary union among uh, European countries can and does work. <clears throat> the adoption of the euro by 11 EU countries in 1999 was a remarkable achievement. It represented the culmination of a process of integration and convergence that had begun some 50 years earlier. The creation of uh, the euro could be viewed as the end of a process, with Europe having finally reached full economic and monetary integration. Such a view, however, would at best be incomplete, although the introduction of the euro marked the culmination of a long process, it also marked the beginning of another one. In particular, it created new challenges for economic policy. I will focus on these challenges in what follows. <clears throat> A natural starting point for analysis of the benefits and costs of a monetary union is the theory of optimum currency areas originated by Robert Mandel 
in the early 1960s. And an important reason for this Nobel Prize in, for his Nobel Prize in Economics. This literature on optimum currency areas identifies two main costs of a country's participation in a monetary union. These costs are the loss of an independent monetary policy and the ability to alter the nominal exchange rate in order to mitigate the effects of asymmetric shocks. The theory also identifies the desirable characteristics that potential members of a single currency area should have in order to minimize these costs. The characteristics are sometimes viewed as preconditions for judging whether a nation should join a currency union. I will argue that this traditional way of thinking about judging optimality is incomplete. Underlying my argument are the following two factors. First, the traditional approach has to be modified to take uh, modern developments in monetary theory and policy into account. In a world in which monetary policy is best suited to achieve price stability, the loss of monetary policy independence may not be very costly. In fact, for a small open economy such as Greece, it may actually provide net benefits. Second, it can be misleading to view the optimum currency area characteristics as preconditions for ensuring the success of a country's participation in a monetary union. In particular, to view the characteristics as preconditions overlooks the fact that the characteristics or criteria can themselves be endogenous. I will argue that the creation of a monetary union can itself create conditions that are favorable to the well-functioning of the union. <coughs> Let me first turn to the matter of the loss of monetary independence. Modern monetary theory emphasizes the role of monetary policy in providing price stability. By so doing, monetary policy can best provide a stable environment which is a prerequisite for growth. This view contrasts strongly with the view that monetary policy can be used to fine-tuning the economy. The intellectual underpinnings of the emphasis on price stability can be traced to Milton Friedman's and Ed Phelps's critique of the Phillips curve in the late 1960s. <clears throat> on a brief personal note, I was privileged to have been taught macroeconomics at LSE by A.W. Phillips. Professor Phillips was an excellent teacher who made contributions in many areas of macroeconomics. In fact, it is well known that Milton Friedman tried to recruit him to the University of Chicago, but fortunately for LSE, he declined. The Phillips curve expressed the idea of a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. <laughs> the Friedman Phelps insight, which helped earn those economists their respective Nobel Prizes, was that the trade-off was at best temporary. Repeated attempts to reduce unemployment by allowing inflation 
to rise would result in ever-increasing inflation with unemployment returning to its natural rate. <coughs> Although the Friedman-Phelps hypothesis swept through academia in the 1970s, policymakers were slower to catch on. As a result, the 1970s, and in some cases the 1980s, provided a real-world laboratory for testing the, Phelps, the Friedman-Phelps hypothesis. As we know now, central banks that kept trying to pin down the rate of unemployment wound up with both high inflation rates and high unemployment rates. This was a lesson that would not be lost on subsequent generations of central bankers. <coughs> Building on <coughs> the Friedman-Phelps insight, Finn Kidland and Ed Prescott showed that a central bank engaged in discretionary policies has an incentive to promise low inflation, but then to run an expansionary monetary policy that produces higher inflation without lowering unemployment. In a contribution that helped earn these authors the Nobel Prize in 2004, Kidland and Prescott showed that to be credible, central bankers must demonstrate that they are fully committed to a low inflation objective. Full commitment in the Kidland-Prescott framework necessitates independence from political pressures to follow inflationary monetary policies. Otherwise, once inflation expectations become entrenched, it can be very difficult to reduce them. The cost of doing so in terms of higher unemployment can be substantial. Again, the experiences of country after country which pursued expansionary monetary policies in the 1970s and the 1980s provided the laboratory. These insights and the subsequent literature built around them contributed to the now widely held view that central banks should have independence from the political uh, process with a mandate to achieve price stability. In this way, the monetary authorities can make the best possible contribution to supporting sustained economic growth and employment creation. The monetary policy strategy of the ECB can be seen in this slide. It involves three key elements. First, there is the objective of price stability, which the ECB defines is a year-on-year -year increase in consumer prices in the harmonized consumer price index for the euro area to below but close to 2%. The close to was added in 2003 to establish a safety margin above zero inflation to guard against deflationary risks. Price stability is a medium-term goal reflecting the long lags involved in the transmission of monetary policy. Second, 
the two pillars of economic and monetary analysis have been formulated so as to enable the ECB to attain its objective. In the economic analysis, an assessment of current economic and financial developments from the perspective of the interplay between supply and demand in the product and factor markets is made. This provides short to medium-term indications of inflationary risks and inflation. As a cross-check to the economic analysis, the monetary analysis focuses on money and credit developments. In recognition of empirical evidence suggesting that monetary growth and inflation tend to be related in the medium to long run. <coughs> the final element is central bank independence. The Maastricht Treaty grants full political independence to the ECB in the pursuit of price stability. In a democratic society, however, central bank independence needs to be counterbalanced by accountability. That is an obligation on the part of the central bank to explain its decisions to the public and its elected representatives, including, in the case of the ECB, those in the European Parliament. In turn, accountability requires transparency with respect both to objectives and decision-making. To this end, monetary policy decisions taken by the ECB are explained in real time at a press conference immediately after each rate-setting Governing Council meeting. The success of the ECB's monetary strategy is borne out by its record. Since the inception of the euro area, average inflation in the euro area has been 2.08%, a shade higher than the ECB's definition of price stability. <coughs> Inflation expectations have also remained firmly anchored around the ECB's definition of price stability, attesting to the ECB's credibility. <coughs> uh, Long-term interest rates have been at historically low levels. For countries such as Greece with histories of high inflation, the gains from joining the euro area have been very substantial. For years, Greece suffered from double-digit inflation. Uh, growth was anemic and unemployment rose in spite of periods of fairly loose monetary and fiscal policy. Nominal interest rates were high, reaching close to 30% at times during the 1980s. In contrast, the low levels of nominal interest rates experienced in the euro area, reflecting the low levels of inflation expectations, have created conditions for an improved business climate, higher investment, and ultimately higher growth, as you can see from this chart. <laughs> In sum, 
the loss of monetary policy independence identified in the earlier optimum currency area literature as one of the two main costs of joining a monetary union is not necessarily a cost after all. That earlier literature was formulated in the context of Keynesian demand management policies that were popular in the 1960s. Uh, since that time, however, both economic theory and the experience of high unemployment coupled with high inflation have taught us the importance of a credible monetary policy aimed at providing price stability. Moreover, I have argued that for countries with histories of high inflation and political interference in policy formation, a credible monetary policy can be attained by joining a monetary union with an independent central bank. I also mentioned, however, that the earlier literature on optimum currency areas identified a second cost of joining monetary union, the loss of the exchange rate instrument. After all, monetary policy can be focused on price stability, but in the face of an asymmetric shock, the nominal exchange rate may change so that adjustment is facilitated. <coughs> How important, then, is the exchange rate instrument in dealing with asymmetries among the countries participating in the euro area? The early literature on optimum currency areas included a search for mechanisms that could replace the exchange rate or compensate for its absence. This search led to the identification of a number of criteria on which the optimality of a potential currency area could be assessed. These criteria effectively became preconditions for forming a single currency area. <clears throat> I will argue that this traditional view is static in nature. It assumes that a country's characteristics are immutable. In fact, the experience of the euro area suggests that participation in a monetary union can by itself induce changes in economic structure and performance that make the currency area optimal. Much academic research based on the experience of European monetary union indicates that the creation of a monetary union can itself create conditions favorable to the well-functioning of the Union, either through endogenous changes in the way the economies of the Union operate, or through policy changes induced by the existence of the Union. Let me illustrate by discussing some of the so-called preconditions enumerated in the early literature and looking at their evolution within the Euro area. <coughs> Mandel in 1961 identified high mobility of the factors of production, both capital and labor, as a precondition for giving up the use of national exchange rate. While labor mobility is still low within the euro area, reflecting in part linguistic and cultural differences, 
The mobility of capital has been increasing, as evidenced by the positive effect that the euro has had on intra-euro area foreign direct investment. Between 1999 and 2006, the latest uh, data available, the stock of euro area FDI more than doubled from around 14% of euro area GDP to over 30%. <coughs> the importance of the mobility of financial capital was highlighted not only by Mantel in 1961, but also by James Ingram, who in 1962 emphasized the role that financial market integration could play in reducing the costs of monetary union. Uh, deeper financial market integration can help in a number of ways. First, it can cause the transmission mechanism of monetary impulses to become more similar throughout the countries of the Union. Second, it can help reduce the impact of asymmetric shocks by causing equilibrating movements in capital flows. Finally, it can allow members of the Union to ensure against the impact of asymmetric shocks since it provides opportunities for diversification of income sources. If members of the monetary union hold claims on other countries within the union, then the income effect of any asymmetric shock could be mitigated. The introduction of the euro has helped make euro area financial markets more integrated. The money market has been almost perfectly integrated uh, since the formation of the monetary union from day one. <clears throat> uh, the significant growth of the euro corporate bond market also provided evidence of integration and widens the range of potential investors to which firms have access. National bonds and equity market returns exhibit closer co-movements co than they did before the introduction of the euro. We can see the convergence, uh, particularly of uh, Greece towards the uh, German Bund, which is the benchmark for comparison of the returns. Uh, <coughs> The main area where financial integration has lagged is that of retail banking, where in spite of an increase in cross-border mergers and acquisitions, in recent years cross-border activity remains relatively limited. Forces for further integration will continue as market participants increasingly exploit the new environment of monetary union. In addition, a number of initiatives supported by the euro system or 
the European Commission uh, further encouraging integration. An example is, of course, the provision of, uh, of further infrastructure as uh, Target 2, the new payment platform for the financial system, which began operating in November 2007. Another example is, is the single European payments area, and so on and so forth. As integration proceeds, we can expect that monetary transmission mechanisms across the euro area will continue to converge, helping the implementation of the single monetary policy and bringing the euro area closer to an optimum currency area. <coughs> Ronald McKinnon, in 1963, added the criterion of openness. The more open the economies of a monetary union, the less effective nominal exchange rate changes will be in facilitating adjustment because the changes are more likely to feed onto domestic prices and wages, offsetting the competitiveness gains. <clears throat> Recent empirical evidence, however, has shown that a common currency, as opposed to separate currencies tied together with fixed exchange rates, can promote openness or trade integration. The basic intuition underlying this view is that a set of national currencies is a significant barrier to trade. In addition to removing the cost of currency conversion, a single currency and a common monetary policy preclude future competitive devaluations and facilitate foreign direct investment and the building of long-term relationships. These outcomes, in turn, can promote over and above what may have been attained on the basis of the elimination of exchange rate uncertainty among separate currencies, reciprocal trade, economic and financial integration, and the accumulation of knowledge. Greater trade integration can increase growth by increasing allocative efficiency and accelerating the transfer of knowledge. The euro area's experience indicates that the euro has indeed acted as a catalyst for trade integration. Intra-euro area trade in goods increased from 26% of euro area GDP in 1998 to 33% in 2006. Intra-area trade in services has also risen. Recent empirical work has shown that similar increases in trade have not taken place among European countries which did not adopt the euro. <coughs> Canon emphasized product diversification, the idea being that countries which were more diversified or less specialized in production would be less likely to face asymmetric shocks. Indeed, before the formation of European Monetary Union, there was considerable worry that Monetary Union would cause national economies to become more specialized as production became concentrated to reap the benefits of scale and agglomeration economics. economies. 
Whilst there is perhaps little evidence that the advent of monetary union has caused economies to become even more diversified, there is no evidence that they have become more specialized, thus allaying these early fears. Another contribution to the optimum currency area literature, again made by Peter Kenin in 1969, brought out the importance of establishing a fiscal transfer mechanism at the supranational level in order to help stabilize economies hit by asymmetric shocks. While such a centralized fiscal mechanism is extremely limited uh, in Europe, the stability and growth pact, uh, with its emphasis on budgets being either in balance or surplus over the economic cycle, is designed to uh, ensure that national budgets have the flexibility to react to adverse asymmetric shocks, mainly through the automatic stabilizers. <clears throat> uh, in sum, the creation of the euro may itself contributing to the very conditions that make the use of nominal exchange rate adjustments among the members of the euro area less necessary than was the case before they joined the euro area. Nevertheless, it can be argued that a country surely must give up something if it no longer has the exchange rate too. My reaction to this argument is that adjustment of the nominal exchange rate is not a magic bullet. One should not expect an economy with competitiveness problems running, say, current account deficits equal to 6% of GDP to depreciate the nominal exchange rate and become competitive forever after. We tried this policy in Greece in the 1980s and wound up with higher inflation, uh, undiminished current account deficits, and a, uh, and a currency that became prone to speculative attacks. By this very nature, the current account is the result of intertemporal decisions with respect to savings and investment by the private sector and government. It should not be surprising then that the nominal exchange rate cannot be relied upon to bring about lasting adjustments. Such adjustment requires changes in an economy's structure. And as I have argued, membership of a monetary union can encourage those changes. I have argued that ways of thinking about monetary union have evolved considerably from the early days of the literature on optimum currency areas. Developments in modern macroeconomics recast the goals of monetary policy. The focus nowadays on price stability and the creation of the conditions necessary to support growth and employment changes the balance of the arguments about the cost of giving up an independent monetary policy. Provided that the monetary policy framework at the union level delivers price stability, there is little to be lost from transferring monetary policy 
to the Union level. <coughs> the success of the Euro area has demonstrated that one size can fit all. Let me briefly mention three pieces of evidence which support this. First, inflation dispersion has declined has been around one percentage point since the second half of 1999. This compares favorably with inflation dispersion across a monetary union of similar size, the United States. Second, the decline in inflation dispersion has not been at the expense of higher growth dispersion. Growth dispersion has remained close to its historical average of around two percentage points, and if any trend is discernible, it is a downward one. Finally, business cycles appear to have become more correlated. <coughs> The evidence from almost 10 years of monetary union in Europe points to a euro area which is endogenously adapting itself to become an optimum currency area. The euro area provides clear evidence that the criteria identified in the earlier literature do not need to be exogenously in place prior to monetary union. I do not want to leave you with the impression, however, that euro area policymakers can sit back and relax because all the necessary work has been done. After all, I began this lecture by remarking that the adoption of the euro created new challenges for economic policy. The adoption of the euro was neither the beginning nor the end of an optimum currency area among European countries. The process is ongoing. And much more needs to be done, especially in regard to structural policies to ensure that the euro area becomes a more dynamic force for growth in the global economy. It is my view that the experience of the euro area to date only serves to highlight the fact that a currency union requires flexibility and competition in factor and product markets. These are the characteristics that will make monetary union work more effectively. Thank you for your attention.
Uh, I have two big questions. One is, I think the implication of what you were saying was that the benefits of joining the European Monetary Union appear to be greater for smaller states than for larger states. Uh, would you agree with that? And secondly, the disbenefits of the costs, the presumed disbenefit costs for joining the monetary union were used by the British government effectively to argue that they shouldn't join the European monetary union. And the UK economy has actually done very well following that and done better than the larger economies in the European Union. How would you explain this? Thank you. Uh, other questions? The gentleman just behind here. Um, uh, my question is, um, I think it's fine. Um, my question relates more to the countries within the Union. And um, as um, it's currently mentioned, Philip's studying the Philip's government here. One of the arguments against it at the time was that it was very high level and there was sort of an obsession with inflation and the associated statistics that the everyday bread and butter sort of economic issues were sort of ignored. And if you take the example of Italy, for instance, and Berlusconi, I know he's quite sure. Sorry, I cannot hear you, I'm afraid. Could you speak a bit louder? Okay. My question relates to um, the more sort of finite issues with countries within the European Union, and I use Italy as an example, where uh, I think the uh, president came out a few days ago to sort of amplify the fact that being a part of the European Union has hurt the Italian economy a lot more because of the inflexibility, and generally from a holistic point that uh, the European monetary policy sort of obsessed with inflation and the associated statistics, and tends to ignore the everyday smaller bread butter issues in the economy. How would you sort of um, really, how, what would be your response to that? Good. Thank you. Okay. Can we, okay, yes, yes, okay, yes. First, good week, yes. I, uh, I did not argue that uh, uh, smaller economies benefited more than uh, larger economies. I, I argued that uh, open economies that have benefited uh, more than uh, closed economies. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, of course, there are differences uh, in uh, the benefits reaped from uh, membership of the euro area among the different countries. And that would, of course, uh, answer the question on Italy. I don't want to generally uh, refer to individual member countries but I because there are other countries that had similar problems uh, with Italy. Uh, I would uh, say that uh, countries that uh, have been lagging behind others uh, A. in eliminating macroeconomic imbalances. Remember that some countries have started with a, even though they've, uh, they've met the master criteria before they joined the euro area, they still have, for example, high debt-to-GDP ratios. Uh, other countries 
did not make much uh, progress with the structural reforms and they had very rigid uh, markets, in labor markets and markets in goods and services. Uh, and uh, other countries were being too generous with their, their wage increases. Uh, and the typical example is, of course, Germany, that uh, since the inception of the euro area, they had uh, uh, a very, very low uh, increase, almost zero increase in unit, in unit level process. And so the German economy, of course, gained an enormous competitive advantage during this year against a number of countries, including my own, that had uh, a much faster increase in level cost. I mean, uh, I uh, talked earlier on uh, about the convergence of inflation rates or the dispersion, the low dispersion of inflation rates, but one characteristic that I did not mention is that there have been some countries that had persistently high, higher than average inflation rates, uh, like Greece and uh, Ireland, Spain. These are countries that, of course, had much higher than average growth rates. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, part of uh, uh, this, the reason for that is uh, that they had a very high increase of uh, unit level cost. In the case of Greece, for example, we joined the euro area in 2001, and uh, from that period to uh, last year, uh, we had an average inflation rate of 3.4%, 1.2% above the euro area average, uh, and uh, an average rate of uh, increase of unit level costs also 3.4%. Uh, coming back to the second question of uh, Riga's Doganis, the UK, uh, of course, I mean, uh, the UK has an excellent performance because it was one of the first European countries to introduce structural reforms. And, uh, of course, uh, limited imbalances. And uh, uh, the theory of optimal currency areas does not argue that large countries cannot have a better performance outside the, the monetary union. I mean, uh, there are specific reasons for the uh, good performance of the UK, and things are beginning to change now, but uh, my view is that these are uh, cyclical changes, not uh, structural changes. UK economy has benefited enormously from uh, drastic uh, reforms, structural reforms that uh, were uh, introduced uh, much, much earlier than in other countries. We have other examples, I mean, Ireland is another example within the So uh, I would not attribute it to the participation or non participation uh, of a currency area, I would attribute it to the right policy being followed. Ah, that's uh, it's very. My view has always been that uh, the UK should uh, join the UN for various reasons, uh, and I still believe that it's not too late for the UK to join the UN. Uh, 
the banking sector or the financial sector, but of course it is responsible for the financial stability in the euro as a whole, and this is one of the reasons why during the recent turmoil from day one, I would say, has been intervening with the provision of liquidity to create normal conditions for the operation of, of, uh, of credit markets. On uh, <coughs> the previous question, uh, yes, I, I, I think uh, it's, it's a good question. The, the stability and growth pact was uh, created right after the massive treaty was signed. Uh, the Germans in particular were very anxious to uh, have this uh, pact. Uh, it's interesting that originally it was a stability pact and the French added the word growth. No, no, not Jospin, no, no, no. Uh, it was somebody else anyway that uh, they, they said we should call it the stability and growth uh, And now this, of course, uh, tries to impose fiscal discipline. Uh, and it has recently been amended. They introduced the preventive arm to uh, force the governments to take action before uh, the increase in budget deficits actually occur uh, through a number of new conditions that were incorporated in the amended pact. But of course, we must uh, bear in mind that fiscal policy is the responsibility of the governments of the member states. Uh, and therefore, uh, although they have to respect the stability and growth act which all the governments have signed. Nevertheless, if we look back, the experience is that many governments do not, have not respected it, especially some of the governments of large countries that insisted that this pact was introduced in monetary union uh, had ended up with the deficits uh, above uh, 3%, with excessive deficits, to use the terminology of the treaty, for a number of years. Uh, now we are moving back towards more discipline, but uh, I would say that I'm not very happy. And uh, if you look at the introductory statement that uh, the President of the ECB presents immediately after the, the rate-setting meeting uh, the, uh, that is the first meeting of the bank in the press conference that he gives in the introductory statement there is always a large paragraph that refers to the need for fiscal discipline and for greater efforts to ensure fiscal discipline but uh, uh, I would have thought that uh, if the stability and growth pact is expected, uh, and now, for example, the ministers themselves in the euro, which is the 
ministers of finance of the countries that have adopted the euro. The euro that they've set a target to achieve balanced budgets by the year 2010. Some of them said a bit later, some a bit earlier. Uh, there is a target. If uh, they respect uh, these targets that they've set themselves, uh, then uh, I would have thought that uh, we'll have a, a greater fiscal discipline and the automatic stabilizers could, could cope with the, the shocks, uh, specific shocks, when they occur. But I do not think that there is any possibility at the moment uh, in the present political setup to envisage a federal budget, federal, like a federal type of, of uh, budget. The, as you know, the, the budget of the European Commission is uh, around 1.2% of GDP. It's not much and it cannot be used uh, really in the way one would uh, like to use it in the monetary union in cases of asymmetric uh, shocks. I'm tempted to just misuse my position as chair, if I may, and um, ask if you have any comments on how Greece has respected the fiscal rules of the Stability and Growth Pact and the issue, of course, of the reporting of uh, fiscal uh, indicators from Greece to the European authorities. Do you have any comments about uh, how well Greece has respected those rules that you emphasised before? I am not going to make any comments about the statistics because this is uh, really a matter between the Eurostat and the Greek Statistical Service, and I have not, uh, I'm not briefed, I don't have enough knowledge on what the difference of uses is all about, these are technical details. But I can tell you that, of course, uh, Partly because of, uh, we hosted, as you know, in 2004, the Olympic Games, we ended up with a fairly large uh, general government budget deficit. And uh, uh, the Minister of Finance, Mr. Lopez, who has made a great effort to bring that down. And Greece, as you know, was uh, being. Uh, uh, surveyed by the European Commission uh, under the rules of the GDP as a country with an excessive deficit. Now, since a couple of years ago, we are no longer a country with an excessive deficit, and uh, considerable progress was made. The current uh, deficit was about, the, sorry, the, the general government deficit was about 2.6% uh, in 2006. Uh, it was again under 3%, about 2.7.8% in 2007. And for this year, the, uh, the aim is to bring it further down to 1.6%. Uh, so uh, uh, Greece and a number of other countries are moving in the right direction. Uh, but whether we are uh, moving at the required speed is another matter, particularly the case of Greece and Italy. services to bring that attention. 
growth over the years. That is because they have rigid labor markets, rigid processors markets, they lost competitiveness, and as a result, they, they have uh, suffered in terms of output and employment. Uh, on uh, the question, I'm moving now backwards, uh, of uh, in fact, uh, you have raised a, a very important issue which is very general, it's not only an issue uh, within a monetary union. Uh, efficiency and price stability and competitiveness on the one hand, income distribution and welfare on the other. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, some of the literature is demonstrating that the two are not compatible. We uh, at the ECB have take the view that maintaining price stability and price expectations that are compatible with price stability creates the conditions for higher growth of output and job creation. And uh, the historical evidence, in my view, supports so this is my answer to uh, your question. On uh, the Balkans, now, uh, which credit uh, changes in credit conditions uh, uh, or recent credit problems? Are you referring to the uh, financial turmoil or are you referring to the excessive uh, credit expansion in these countries, in the Balkan countries? The turmoil. Well, uh, I think uh, the, the worry that arises from the turmoil is the so-called credit crunch, that uh, there will not be enough supply of credit. I think most of the Balkan countries, including uh, my own country, suffer, suffer from the opposite problem. They have an excessive credit expansion. And that, of course, creates uh, risks uh, for the banking sector. Uh, that's, uh, of course, whether so, uh, I don't think that uh, uh, this credit crunch uh, has any major impact in this country. The impact has been limited in these countries, uh, and indeed in uh, in most of the uh, emerging countries, the impact has been limited. Uh, the supply of credit has not been affected very much, but the cost of credit has The spreads are much higher now uh, in, in most countries. And of course, if the cost of money increases, this is about to have some effect on growth. And we are witnessing already some slowdown of growth in these countries as well, but not a dramatic one. Uh, not as dramatic as, as in the more advanced countries. Well, uh, as you know, uh, in these countries, the 
large, the biggest proportion of the market is uh, uh, was taken over by, by foreign banks, uh, including Greek banks, or maybe Italian banks, Austrian banks, and uh, uh, as a private supervisor, I can tell you that I've done two things. First, I try to make sure that the Basel II agreement uh, is uh, fully implemented, and we give special emphasis uh, in the case of our banks to uh, developing better systems of risk management and implementing those not only at home but also in the countries which they uh, penetrated and they have uh, subsidiaries and, uh, and branches. Uh, and the second thing that I did was to invite the governors of uh, the central banks in the region to Greece twice to sign a memorandum of understanding so that we can not only exchange information, but uh, gradually coordinate our policies as banking supervisors. Uh, and that is because we see that the risks are there and we need a more effective, better coordinated system of banking supervision to uh, actually uh, prevent uh, or minimize these risks. And uh, the countries that are invited are not only members of the EU, they are countries outside the EU from the Balkans. And they've all responded with great enthusiasm to our initiative at the Bank of Greece. And uh, uh, the, the National Bank of Bulgaria now is, is taking over the, this, from us, the chairman, as it were, of this group. And they will be meeting in Sofia to uh, discuss further ways of uh, making uh, further progress of uh, coordination amongst the uh, banking supervisors. Thank you. Um, I think we are actually out of time. Uh, I know a number of questions were wanting to be asked, but we must uh, respect this, the schedule. On your behalf, uh, can I thank our speaker for uh, the character of his lecture and his willingness to answer so many different questions? And I'm very, very pleased that we've been able to welcome him back once again to the OSC. Thank you, Dr. Gatchin.